Morning Glory and Evening Grace America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Quite a show today with George Will Scott Walker and a perfect day to finish our conversation on the Hillsdale Dialogue about the Prince with Dr. Larry on President of Hillsdale College, and with Professor Will Morrissey, their their Prince in residence, their Machiavell in in residence. That's not very fair, is it, Professor Morrissey, to call you a Machiavell? I'm sorry. No, that... no but I've been I've been called. I don't know if I've ever been called worse. As a matter of fact. <laughs> All right, I, I have a first question. We've got to cover a lot of ground. There are 26 chapters and a dedicatory letter in The Prince, Dr. Arn, or, or a total of 27 chapters. Does that make Chapter 14 the key? Uh, well, I think, uh, yeah, it's one of them, sure. Right. Well, it, uh, it, the, you know, he's, if you just look for the wickedness in the titles... They tend to be pretty indicative. Well, I want to cover chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 23, and 25. And so I'm going to start with Professor Morrissey on chapter 14. This excerpt. A prince ought to have no other aim or thought nor select anything else for his study than war and its rules and disciplines. For this is the sole art that belongs to him who rules, and it is of such force that it not only upholds those who are born princes, but al- often enables men to rise from private stations at rank. And, and so it seems to me that's at the center of his book is a focus on war. So he's, he's very serious about this. He wants President Obama and every other person who aspires to be in power to be thinking constantly about how one does and doesn't do war. The prince of war replaces the prince of peace. The... Um uh, the armed prophet replaces the unarmed prophet, and um, the the uh, this is this is one of the this is one of the reasons why this is a central teaching of of the prince. Um, now, there's no doubt, of course, that um, one of the uh, arts of any statesman would be the art of war, but um, uh, the, to make it the core that way is is a, is really a radical revision. He does say something I, I imagine in Chapter 14, Dr. Arn, you would agree with. He says that to exercise the intellect, the prince should read histories and study there the actions of illustrious men to see how they borne themselves in war and to examine the causes of their victories and defeat so as to avoid the latter and imitate the former and above all do as an illustrious man did who took as an exemplar one who had been praised and famous before him uh, and he goes on to write about always model yourself on the successful. Now, you, you actually teach that at Hillsdale, don't you? You spend a lot of time emulating, studying, thinking about Churchill and Lincoln and Washington and people such as that. So you're in agreement with Machiavelli. Very much. And so prudence is exactly the same in Aristotle and in Machiavelli, except for one thing. So first, what is prudence? By the way, within the last half hour, I've had a lecture from my eldest daughter on this very subject. Oh. She found out she found out we were talking about Machiavelli, and she went and got her book, and she came and lectured me about Machiavelli for a little <laughs> while. So I'll tell you what she just said. Um, uh, in, in Machiavelli, well, first of all, what is prudence? Prudence is choosing things in the way of action. And what the right thing to do is depends a lot on the circumstances, and the circumstances are always shifting around. And so statesmen have this gift of prudence, and they, they are really good. They're deadly. You know, a lot of this stuff, you know, this sounds like Winston Churchill, a lot of this war stuff, because that man could fight. Yep. So, and Churchill himself goes on at enormous length 
to explain why, in judging a statesman, he probably wrote more about this, he certainly wrote more about this than any statesman I know, explaining how you judge a statesman, and it depends upon placing their decisions in context and making judgments as they must make them about what the necessities are. So that's very Machiavelli, right? There's just one difference. And the difference has to do with that other kind of intellectual virtue. Because in, in, in Aristotle, where the, the classical site for the discussion of prudence is, that's also the first clear essay or treatise description of the kinds of regimes. And the kinds of regimes are how many rule, one, few, or many. And the second category is fundamental. Are they good or not? Machiavelli takes that second one away, and the kinds of regimes in Machiavelli are the ones that conquer and the ones that are conquered. And, you know, he, he says to that in the very next chapter, Dr. Arndt, it appears to me more appropriate to follow up the real truth of the matter than the imagination of it. Hence That's right. It, hence it is necessary for a prince wishing to hold his own to know how to do wrong and to make use of it uh, or not according to necessity. So he's so having a, none so, of <laughs> So Will should repeat a very good thing he said last week in a minute about the good in people and how Machiavelli misses something. And that's why Machiavelli, in fact, doesn't work. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one more point. Um, in Aristotle, there's a description of a quality. It's not a virtue called, it translates as cleverness. And that's just being good at picking stuff without being devoted to the correct ends. What, er what Machiavelli does is he converts prudence into cleverness because the only test is success. Just to add to that, um, Machiavelli says he wants to go to the effectual truth of things, not to the imagination of it. Right. He is... He is replacing – and the idea of the imagined truth is something along the lines of Plato's Republic. That is to say the idea of something, the form of it, the shape of it. Both in Plato and in Aristotle, you understand something's nature by looking at its shape or its form and understanding it that way through the sight, in other words, what Machiavelli calls the imagination. What Machiavelli does – is to say, no, don't depend on the sight. The sight is deceptive. What you need to do is to, is to perceive things. He, uses, he says, feel something, the hand. You don't, uh, it's, it's, it's all empirical. It's all material. And the hand has two functions, right? On the one hand, it perceives. It perceives material things only. It isn't uh, distracted by imagination or anything it thinks it perceives through sight. But it also manipulates. It grasps. It controls. That, that, that combination of controlling and feeling, and feeling something that's material, the, the, the shaping of the material world, that's what Virtu amounts to. And in that 15th chapter that, you're, that we're talking about now, you notice how he approaches the notion of these virtues. He's just like as in Aristotle's ethics, he, has, he lists 11 types of virtues. But instead of Aristotle's approach, which is finding the, the center between two extremes, between, say, um, 
timidity and rashness, which is courage, is, is in the middle. That's the virtue. What he does is to give you uh, 11 pairs or dichotomies, giving or re rapacious, humane versus proud, etc. And he says, what you do is you pull back from all of these things and you use them. That is to say, you manipulate them, just like you'd manipulate clay. Yep. And um, so virtue in Machiavelli is this... Um, is 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 the effective manipulation of both goodness and badness using both goodness and badness it's all about use control manipulation and thus in chapter 17 he says look don't worry if people think you're cruel it's right. it's very useful to be thought cruel that's mm -hmm. not something we're used to hearing but in fact it works it's worked everywhere and at all times hasn't it uh yes and no i mean um um, what you know this? So the Machiavellian prudence that drives the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, right? And both of those were places that would much better be feared than loved. They they believed that their theoretical duty was the control and remaking of everything in nature. That means every person, every neighbor, every country, every everything, and. And their their purpose, you know, Hitler, you see him striking his palm with his fist when he's talking, and he's talking about hitting things all the time. So that's on the one hand, right? But the second there's a weakness, then everybody queues up to be against you because people hate that. Now, Machiavelli's prudence is profound, and here it'd be worth saying a word for Machiavelli because generally right through this book, Machiavelli's counsel is always... Uh, do the cruel things first. Uh, better to seize your principality by crime than to inherit it because you're going to have to do the terrible things later. And Machiavelli's counsel is do the terrible things in a hurry and get them over with. Then he's off, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> then he's off. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, his colleague, Professor Will Morrissey. It is the hour of the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week. And what a week it is in which to be talking about Machiavelli. We mix in a little President Obama at the end of this week. When we turn to Chapter 17, whether it's better to be feared or loved vis-a-vis -vis our Allies in the Middle East? We'll find out when we return to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. 21 minutes after the hour. The Hillsdale Dialogue underway. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues, every single one of them dating back to January, January of 2013, are available online for free at hugh4hillsdale.com. All of the offerings of Hillsdale College available at hillsdale.edu. And, of course, uh, you can sign up there completely free for the Speech Digest that we'll send you monthly, including in Primus's Many, many offerings. I've got to say, uh, earlier in the week, a friend of the college, Mark Stein, said on this show that President Obama has made America treacherous to be a friend and uh, weak as an enemy, not feared as an enemy. And it brought to mind from Chapter 17, quote, Upon this question, Machiavelli rise, uh, uh, writes, arises whether it is better to be loved than feared or feared than loved. It may be answered that one should wish to be both, but because it is difficult to unite them in one person. It is much safer to be feared than loved when of the two either must be dispensed with. Dr. Arn, we are clearly neither feared nor loved. Which is it worse to be without? Uh, well, it, you know, that it depends on 
who who you're dealing with, right? Because uh, there's a lot of very treacherous countries in the world right now, and you don't want their love. It isn't available. It, they love themselves, and they love the power they hold. They're Machiavellians. So with them, it's much better to be feared. Machiavelli's case is it's better in all cases to be feared because when you when someone loves you, they're in control, and when someone fears you, you're in control. That distinction doesn't work, in my opinion, again, because first of all, it's really good counsel if you're dealing with a bunch of mullahs running Iran right yep. now. Yep. And on the other hand, you know, I have a friend, he's a retired guy now, but he was vice, he's a very important diplomat from South Korea. And I got to know him one time because uh, uh, I, I always think the Koreans are like the Irish. They're surrounded by all these great powers and it makes them really stubborn. And uh, mm -hmm. I said to him one time, I said, well, you know, Korea is our way of doing a colony. And I think at the moment I said that to him, he was the vice foreign minister of Korea, South Korea. And he goes, hoop, hoop, you know, and what are we talking about? You know, we're a colony, we're no colony. <laughs> I said, that's exactly what you are. And he said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, think, you know, we come over here. It's, it's not even clear it was a great idea. And we fight like crazy. And it's terrible and it's hell. And it ends up kind of a draw. And then you get a country out of it. And you elect your own government. And you've got a million-man army pledged to help defend us. And we've got 40,000 people over here. And you pay for it. You're a free people. That's our way of doing colony. Well, that's, you know, very valuable, right? That's because it's cheap and it's, it's, you, there's somebody you can turn your back to so you can face somebody else. And, you know, Korea came up on the show this week, I think, with Fred Kagan. When we were talking about the president's inability to execute a status of forces agreement, and maybe it was Stein, and he said, and Re stood up on his hind legs once and got all barky at us, and we slapped him down and said, this is how it's going to be for a while. Now, we would never be able to do that today, but we ought to have done that to Maliki in 2011. And had we done that to Maliki in 2011, we would not be watching the disintegration of our one-time colony, because Iraq was a colony as well, wasn't it, Larry? It was a protectorate. And we let it go to hell. Well, that's right. And, you know, Winston Churchill helped to form Iraq, and he, they inherited it from the, from, from the League of Nations after the First World War. And he got out of there as fast as he could. Um, you know, it's the, you have to judge the circumstances, and Churchill didn't think that was a place for Britain to hold on to. And while he was managing it, his number two in doing it was T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and they both agreed to get out of there. And they used airplanes for the first time in history to police a colony because it was cheaper. So there's, there's lessons for us to learn here. But uh, And, you know, I, I, my own view is we underestimated the difficulty of building a regime there drastically on the one hand. And, you know, and on the other hand, you know, I mean, George Bush did an awful lot there and he had a lot of firmness in him. But still, it's hard to do, right? And now, on the other hand, we're just, we look ridiculous to powers that are waxing, including China. And we look ridiculous to ourselves as well. Professor Morrissey, chapter uh, 18, has within it the very famous paragraph, a prince, therefore, being compelled knowingly to adopt the beast, ought to choose the fox and the lion, because the lion cannot defend himself against snares, 
and the fox cannot defend himself against wolves. Therefore, it is necessary to be a fox to discover the snares and a lion to terrify the wolves. Those who rely simply on the lion do not understand what they are about. So that is a caution, really, against being the muscular, muscle-bound brute. Yes, and um, that again, uh, the, 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 the language is all about use. You have these features that are within your nature. And you notice just before that, in that chapter, he, he talks about the prince as a, as a kind of centaur, right? The, uh, the, the centaur who was uh, Achilles' advisor, half beast, half man. And you have to be able to use both of these natures, he says. And um, using both of them uh, is, is, again, this, 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 uh, this pulling back. Think of, think of what that means. You're, you're taking things that you would, previous thinkers would consider part of the human soul. And you're, there's, there's part of you that's pulling back, watching these things and deploying them as if they were troops, whether they be uh, virtues and vices, these characters of the lion and the fox, all of these things, there's this, this, there's this knot. It's a kind of, it's not even a soul anymore. It's a sort of self. Or, oh, it's, it's, it's horrible at, in this very chapter, probably the worst paragraph. And you have to understand this, that a prince, especially a new one, cannot observe all those things for which men are esteemed, being often forced in order to maintain the state to act contrary to fidelity, friendship, humanity and religion therefore it is necessary for him to have a mind ready to turn itself accordingly as the winds and variations of fortune force it i mean this means anything goes to keep the state professor morrissey that's exactly right uh, now larry on we don't really want so, so do you want to line this to your daughter and say we really don't want machiavelli in the house much <laughs> well my daughter's just fine, but uh, <laughs> but uh, and, but she understands her Machiavelli, and it, it's a uh, ghoulish. Will and I are discovering that this in each other during these dialogues, right? Because we both really like Machiavelli. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's fun. <laughs> it's just wicked. <laughs> it, it, it is just wicked, and it is also necessary, right? There are people well, like this, and mm. and look look at the you know I, I'll say one more word for Machiavelli. It, it, this is not just uh, this is you know like read you know my favorite book about communism is Darkness at Noon, and the evil of that is a simple dehumanization of the human being. Machiavelli is writing in a context where his country is miserable because it's weak and it won't act, and he is trying to fix that. He is, he, and in fact, towards the end of the very last chapter, the book is on that. I come back with Professor Will Morrissey, Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. All of this and every other Hillsdale dialogue available at HughForHillsdale.com. Transcripts all throughout the year at HughHewitt.com as well. Stay tuned. 34 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt, the penultimate section on Machiavelli with our friends Dr. Larry Arn and Professor Will Morrissey of Hillsdale College. Uh, HughForHillsdale.com for all of these uh, Dr. Arn, I address this to you because you are the president of an institution, and it seems to me the most useful chapter and morally unambiguous chapter, just plain good sense, is chapter 23 on flattery. Uh, and in there, the counsel is empower a few people to speak to you when they are asked, and only a few people, but then listen closely when they begin to give you advice. And if I can 
at a codicil. And don't ask them all that often. What do you make of this chapter? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> you, uh, so he, I guess what I think about that is this. Um, it's way better to work with people that you value. And uh, you can't, you can't, and you have to have a relationship with them where you trust them and you admire them and they need to do that back to you. Because running things is hard. There's always complications. Stuff gets in the way. Uh, you're too busy. Facts arise that may be very threatening. You're afraid because you don't know. You guess all the time, right? So it's an atmosphere of stress. And any management of anything is like that. Maybe people managing their personal budgets are like that, right? This is human life we're living. Do you, do you, to the quote Machiavelli, discourage everyone from offering advice unless you ask for it? No. No. <laughs> no. And, and uh, you know, at the college, the way it works, and this is my experience, and I, you know, I know a lot about Winston Churchill. I know his cabinet worked this way. I know that the people who worked with him admired him very greatly because he was awesome. And he really made things work. And it, it, the way you want it to be is... It has to be clear who can decide because when you don't know what the hell to do, then somebody's got to decide and it's better if it's the person with the rank. And then sometimes the person with the rank thinks he knows and then he can decide. And then there has to be some consistency brought to things. So you have to, you know, and, and you can't do that if somebody doesn't have the power to decide when he, when he wishes. So uh, Aristotle's uh, expression for just rule is ruling and being ruled in turn. And that's not what Machiavelli means here. What Machiavelli means here is just be sly and make sure you find out all the facts, but keep them in the place even if you appoint them to tell you. Uh, Professor Morrissey, you agree with that? So he's not really encouraging you to have a permanent standing cabinet who will speak freely? No, what he says is, uh, if, any, if everyone can tell you the truth, they lack reverence for you. And um, that religious language is significant, right? He does have something very sensible to say, though. He says, a prince who is not wise by himself cannot be ruled well, counseled well. Yeah. And that's, that's true. That's the thing, you know, people are always saying it's his advisors. And it's never the advisors, right? Yeah. Because if you've got bad advisors... Who does that say something about? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, think of Reagan. I, th this book that just came out uh, about Reykjavik, uh, the Edelson, uh, uh, makes it very clear that when Reagan sat down across the table from Gor Gorbachev, uh, he knew just as much about the details of the uh, arms uh, situation as Gorbachev did. Yeah. Uh, you know, he also said here that is remarkably true, and I think I've found to be true. Uh, the prince ought to be a, quote, constant inquirer, and afterwards, a patient listener concerning the things of which he inquired. And, and uh, Larry Arnn, I think you would say about Churchill, I'm not sure about Lincoln, that he was most definitely a constant inquirer. Oh, both of them were. Yeah, of course. You know, and, you know, both of them had the same relationship with their generals. Right. And Lincoln, probably better than Churchill ever did, said Churchill said war is too important to be left to the generals. Lincoln said to McClellan one time, if you're not using the army, may I borrow it? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 but they pushed. They pushed constantly yeah, for and, answers. And that's the, the thing. And see, that's like, think about war for a minute. Because, you know, Machiavelli is, 
it, it's the Prince is a wonderful book to read because it's almost true. And yeah. It's very vivid, right? <laughs> so here's the way war works, right? War, war is subordinate to peace. You don't, in any good country, you don't fight wars for their own sake. You fight them to preserve what you do in peace. Now, that means that politicians are superior to generals. On the other hand, generals generally know more about war than politicians do, and war could be the death of the whole state. So when you sit in a room, who decides? And that, that's complicated to say, and it depends on the quality of the statesman and the general. When we come back, the most dangerous chapter of all, and so as an exercise of prudence, we will have Professor Morrissey explain why <laughs> fortune is like a woman. I'll be right back, America. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America, wrapping up our study of Machiavelli with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, his uh, wonderful colleague, Will Morrissey, on the faculty there. Professor Morrissey, I did say as I was going to break, I was going to task you with breaking this down. Fully aware that earlier today I had on George Will, who this week has been subject of the professional outrage machine for a column he wrote, uh, uh, which has been purposely misinterpreted and uh, used to flog him from the pages of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and other places. Here is what Machiavelli wrote in Chapter 25. For my part, I consider that it is better to be adventurous than cautious, because fortune is a woman, and if you wish to keep her under, it is necessary to beat and ill-use her, and it is seen that she allows herself to be mastered by the adventurous rather than by those who go to work more coldly. She is therefore always womanlike, a lover of young men, because they are less cautious, more violent, and with more audacity to command her. Now, we do not believe in abusing women, and I want to say that like three times. No one on this call believes in that. But what was he trying to say in his medieval period about fortune and how to master it? The figure of fortune, Fortuna, uh, the, the notion that um, either God's providence or simply um, um, another, another goddess, namely Fortuna, was controlling the, the course of events was a, was a, uh, a traditional figure in uh, iconography, uh, both classical and Christian. Um, the notion of Lady, uh, Lady Fortuna. And the idea, of course, in those days was the, that uh, she, she would change her mind, right? That was uh, part of the, the, the way they, they thought of women in those days. Um, so the idea here is that you don't want that to happen, that you want to control everything that is outside of you. You want to master fortune. And the way you do it is not by being uh, passive, but by being active. And Larry, Arndt, is he really counseling that the younger the ruler, the better, that because the more audacious they will be in attempting to master their circumstances? Well, he's, uh, I think he's in the education business right there. He's uh, looking for somebody young and impetuous who will seize the day because he thinks that's what he wants to train. That's what he wants to happen. And he's, you know, there is a profound act of liberation going on here to, to free the reader from the constraints of morality and substitute a new morality that involves the working of the will. And that is a young man's work. And so this is where the book ends here in urging people to be free of all restraint and to try and make their own fortune. There isn't anything of the resignation that a Christian might feel about their circumstances, Professor Morrissey, is there? 
absolutely not. Um, then, and he even in that final chapter, uh, exhortation to seize Italy and free her from the barbarians, uh, it, it says very clearly that Italy is now more enslaved than the Hebrews were. And, um, and uh, the, 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 the new Moses, right, who will lead you to the promised land is Mr. X. And who's going to be advising Mr. X, if not Machiavelli? So as you close your, your young Hillsdale College students' study of Machiavelli and the book is put down, what do you want them to take away from it? And I'm going to ask you both that. Dr. Morrissey, you first. Uh, one of the things I want them to take away from it is how influential it was. If you think about the materialism, if you think about the notion of mastering fortune, and then think ahead to the modern scientific project of Francis Bacon, what does he say? We should master nature right, in order to uh, uh, relieve man's estate, that, uh, s- that scientific experiment is, a, is torturing nature to reveal her secrets. It's Machiavellian language. The, u- the way we use science and technology in the modern world is, uh, is, is closely analogous to this notion of uh, controlling fortune that Machiavelli uh, introduces for the first time. And just as perilous and often just as as uh, apt to go wrong. How about you, Dr. Mm-hmm. Arn, when you lay down your prints, what do you want your students to know? Three things. Uh, I want them to know the power of this, as Will just said. This is a beautiful uh, uh, examination of what one is up against, you know, because this is, you know, these, <laughs> you think our enemies, America's enemies, and you think people in Washington, D.C. have not absorbed the principles of this book. And then the third thing is they need to know why it's wrong because it, it isn't true, right? I mean, it, it can't it's, – its explanatory power is not sufficient to cover the best things that happen. And so to know that is to rise to a level of potential effectiveness beyond a simple follower of Machiavelli. When you say it isn't true – I pause. It has to be true, at least in part, because sure. it has been practiced and effectively so for periods of time. What you know? So, so here's what's not true. Um, uh, 1942, the Germans attack the Greeks. The British have a pact with them, but the whole world has fallen apart between the making of that pact and the German attack, and so the Greeks. Apply. Come send us some help. What help can they possibly send? And Churchill is told, whatever you send, you're going to lose it, and you're not going to save the Greeks. And so Churchill goes into Parliament, and he says, in their hour of need, the Greeks appealed to us for succor. And having made a contract with them, I'm paraphrasing, before the war, we could not say them nay to abandon an ally in the face of the enemy having by solemn promise guaranteed to come and help, would be destructive of the honor and therefore the survival of the British Empire. There are rules against that kind of thing, he said. It's a very beautiful speech, one of his most important speeches ever he gave. And that means that he made a counsel against a me he made a decision against the counsel of immediate effectiveness and expediency, and he won fame. Machiavelli would reply, 
Well, what you ought to do is do a sham of that, so you win the, <laughs> so you win the fame without the deed. But but Churchill would respond to that with one of his favorite expressions: "Too easy to be good." Too easy to be good, <laughs> and it wouldn't have worked either. Uh, Doctor Larry Arn, Professor Will Morris, the three great weeks on Machiavelli next week under the Reformation. All of the Hillsdale dialogues are available at HughForHillsdale.com. Get all of Hillsdale's free courses at hillsdale.edu, and if you haven't thought about it, send your student there. They'll get this a lot more than you do, and they will profit by it. I'll be right back to conclude this week of The Hugh Hewitt Show.